welcome to the Enlorm podcast series, a series that focuses exclusively on patients now referred to as having nanorare mutations. I'm Stan Crook, and I'm the founder, chairman, and CEO of Enlorm. Enlorm is a nonprofit foundation that I initiated in January of 2020. Our mission at Enlorm is to take advantage of the technology we created at Ionis Pharmaceuticals, Anisense Technology, or ASO Technology, to discover, develop, and provide experimental ASO treatments to nanorail patients, and to do that for free for life. In the first part of these two podcasts, I introduced the concept of risk and discussed several vignettes that were meant to show how our failure to think logically about risk can cause unnecessary harm. Then I laid out a more rational way to assess risk and make risk-benefit decisions. The most important core concept is that our world is governed by laws of probability. And to think rationally about risk, you must become comfortable with uncertainty and you have to think probabilistically. I then discussed nanorare mutations in a probabilistic context and showed that the introduction of a pathogenic nanorare mutation forces individuals and families to make many difficult risk-benefit decisions that are often choices between two or more courses of action associated with significant risk, two or more negative choices, if you like. In my view, making risk-benefit decisions in the context of the health of an individual or a population of patients is why physicians must spend years in training. And when our health is at an issue, we gravitate to those we trust. In this podcast, I want to narrow our focus to consider risk-benefit decisions that directly affect health, and then to consider the unique challenges imposed by nanorare mutations. So risk-benefit decisions. Without consciously thinking about it, all of us make many risk-benefit decisions every day. Let's say that you live on the north side of Indianapolis, and you work at a Ford plant that makes components for the F-150 truck that is 40-minute drive on the freeway from your home. You work seven to three, Monday through Friday. But today, you just don't feel up to going to work and decide to stay in bed all day. That decision making that decision meant that you just reduce your risk of a car accident on the way to work close to zero. I guess you could change your mind. And it seems pretty unlikely that you will not have an accident at the Ford plant since you'll not be there. On the other hand, the decision you made to stay in bed just increased your risk of a blood clot forming in the deep veins of your legs and the risk of a heart attack, stroke, or pulmonary embolism because a piece of that blood clot in the leg breaks off and lodges in you know a bad place for you. The point is that essentially every decision you make is a risk-benefit decision. Obviously, if you ask me, did your decision to stay in bed increase or decrease the likelihood of encountering a harmful event, uh, I'd have to say we don't know enough to provide an answer. To begin to answer that, we would ask, are you a safe driver? How old is your car? What sort of safety features does it have? Do you work on an assembly line or with power tools or in the office? Are you obese? Do you have diabetes? Have you already had a cardiovascular event? And so on and so on. But if we wanted to, we could understand each of those 
issues that I just identified more and sum up and give you an, a probabilistic answer of whether you increase or decrease your overall risk that day of having something bad happen to your health. But whether you think about all this or not, whether you care or not, these risk-benefit calculations are taking place in real time as the laws of probability play out. So key point, assessment of the risk-benefit of a decision about the health of a person must be made in the context of as much information about that person as can be assembled and analyzed. Now, let's focus on Enlorem and the types of patients that we deal with. In a standard clinical trial setting, as I described in part one of this two-part series, we're studying a population and making decisions to treat a population of patients. But Enlorem is vastly different. We are treating a single patient with a severe, often rapidly progressive disease. And we know that even patients with the exact same mutation can have somewhat different phenotypes or somewhat different signs and symptoms of the disease. We also know that time is critical. In fact, we are often in a desperate race in which any delay could mean a far worse outcome for our patient. Thus, what we do at Enlorem is fundamentally different from traditional drug development. And it takes professional drug developers like me a while to get used to these differences. And they are, in fact, profound. What this means is that everything that we do at Enlorem and every risk-benefit decision we make is linked to an individual patient's phenotype. The severity of the syndrome, the rate of progression of the disease, and whether or not we think we can make a real difference in a symptom that matters to the patient and the family. And can we do that with reasonable safety and tolerability? This difference is truly critical, and it means at every step, in our decision-making processes. We must know as much about the patient, his or her needs, and the rate of progression of the syndrome as possible. We must also be clear about what are our therapeutic goals. How will we measure whether benefit has been accrued? And we have to discuss all that with the physician, family, and other interested members of the community that is attempting to help this patient. Only then can we be certain that if we succeed, we'll make a meaningful difference in the lives of our patients and that we will do that in a way that imposes only prudent risk on our patients. So key point, at Enlorm, the context in which we must make risk-benefit judgments is in the individual patient. And we must try to provide a treatment that materially improves the life of each patient and does so only imposing prudent, sensible risks. As much as we would like to promise results, as I've said many times, we cannot. I don't know that I can say that too many times. We cannot promise an outcome of any sort. Anyone who promises benefit with any therapeutic intervention in a specific patient is a charlatan, no matter how much experience there is with that particular medicine. Even if a patient with a specific mutation has benefited greatly, we cannot promise that the next patient treated with that same ASO will benefit or certainly not as much as the patient before. Every patient is different. So we can be more optimistic of a previous patient 
treated with this, the same ASO, with the same mutation has benefited, but we can't make promises. I come back again and again and again to the fact that the only way we can think and talk effectively is in probabilistic terms. It is highly probable. It is unknown. It's unlikely. Those are sort of the best things that we can do. Another key point, we can promise only that we will do our best and that we'll use all of our knowledge and experience and advice from experts to recommend the best course for every patient at Enlorm. Now, this whole two episodes is really how to communicate about risk. It's important to understand that many factors can contribute to the emotions about risk and then use that understanding to do our best to strip our emotions away from the risk-benefit decisions that we have to make. One of the most challenging features of communicating about health, disease, risk, benefit, is the effect of being out of control that it has on us. Multiple studies have shown that people respond with much greater fear or dread to risks that they perceive to be beyond their control. For example, people dread the possibility of a nuclear accident to a much greater extent than more prevalent and pernicious risks that they perceive to be more in their control, like automobile accidents. In fact, you're far more likely to be harmed by an automobile accident than you are by a nuclear accident, at least today. Nanorare diseases strip any sense of control away. One is at the mercy of a process that cannot be controlled. And so we dread the next manifestation of that nanorare mutation. And we must live in fear, and that makes us angry. In fact, diseases in general rob us of a sense of control. And the most logical path to gaining control of the disease is to seek medical and scientific help. But that means that at some point, one must cede control to the medical system, typically led by a physician. The granting of our control to our health or a professional or to another human being is an extraordinary act of trust that must be taken despite the fact that most health professionals seem to speak in a foreign language and never provide certainty, but rather the uncertainty of probability-based comments. Nanorare mutations exacerbate the sense of loss of control because it is usually difficult to find anyone who knows anything at all about the syndrome or is even interested in helping or doing research about the mutation. And often, almost impossible to find a research physician and institution willing and able to care for a nanorare patient. The loss of control is profound in any disease, but in my experience, the loss of control associated with the lack of information and available experts makes everything for the nanorare patient vastly worse than anything I've experienced. What am I trying to teach here? First, it's natural to be angry. After all, none of us like being treated unfairly and having a nanorare disease is grossly unfair. It just is unfair. It's also natural to find someone to blame. But if you make the best of the situation, you must control your anger by focusing it on finding solutions. 
there is generally no one to blame. It's just bad luck. Second, inequities abound. Wealthy families simply can spend more money to get help for their loved ones. But anger and scapegoating only make things worse. Once again, that is terribly unfair. And I think really when, when you ask, well, how, how could I deal with that best? I certainly understand the anger that might come from feeling that just because you don't have as much of financial means as the next person, there's a different outcome. But again, that anger is wasted. My suggestion is to support organizations like Enlorum to demonstrate that they are as committed as possible to equitable delivery of care and that they work hard to do it. So loss of control is at the core of the emotions that we feel about risk. Fear is at the core of what's driving our behavior. And anger is a natural outcome of some of that, that if you're going to make good risk benefit decisions, you're going to have to try to control. A third, though most people are well-meaning, it's important to, to understand how knowledgeable, experienced, and capable the individuals and organizations who are available to help are. It's also vital to understand that each individual encountered will have limits to his or her areas of expertise. For example, it makes absolutely no sense that because a person is an excellent pediatric neurologist, that that person has the knowledge, experience, or capability to create a new therapeutic agent that might treat such patients. They're very different kinds of knowledge and skills. So just because there is an expert in one area doesn't make him an expert in the other areas where you may need expertise as well. Key point, a nanorare disease is unfair. It robs us of our sense of control, then leads to a sense of hopelessness and helplessness because we can't even find someone to talk to. And though natural, if you hope to make the best decisions, you must control and redirect your anger and desperation, hopelessness into effective actions and thoughtful risk-benefit decisions. Another key point, before you entrust anyone with your future or the future of your loved ones, uh, it's important to invest in diligence. You can ask questions no matter what your resources are, and you can make a judgment about who you trust with what element of the care that you or your loved one needs. There's another critical factor that alters our response to risk, and that's exposure. <laughs> we react very differently to risk with which we are familiar, or said another way, react with less emotion to risk with to which we have been exposed than we do to novel risks. All of the risk vignettes I described are examples of known risks with which we have a lot of experience and to which we have been exposed for decades or maybe centuries, and we've gotten comfortable with them. We think we know all about them, even though we don't. But to see how a relative lack of exposure to risk affects perceptions about risk and actual responses. But let me describe the, the response to COVID. For centuries, we lived with the risk of infectious disease, <laughs> and we were comfortable with it, though it killed two out of five children for centuries. But we live at a, a very fortunate time in the developed world where most of infectious disease has been controlled. We don't 
worry about infectious diseases the way our grandparents did. And of course, effective treatments with vaccine and so on, all then lead to a sense that we are in control of infectious disease. And when COVID happened, it was something really novel. And that, I think, was a contributor to the radically different approach that we took in dealing with COVID. Another great example of exposure mattering is is Coumadin. It's just rat poison. This was the first anticoagulant. You probably folks are familiar with people who used to walk around with all kinds of bruises and everything because they were on blood thinners. The blood thinner was Coumadin. As you may recall from a I think maybe the very first or second lecture, a Coumadin has a therapeutic index of less than one, which means that you're more likely to have a side effect than a benefit when treated with Coumadin. And of course, the side effects can include potentially fatal bleeding. Nevertheless, and I lived through this, when there were new, more effective, far safer anticoagulants that were introduced to the therapeutic armamentarium, it took years of effort to convince physicians to convert to the newer, better, safer agents, because they didn't understand that just because they were familiar with the risks of Coumadin didn't mean that they were justified in exposing patients to what had become, with the new drugs on the market, a completely unnecessary risk. Once again, just because a risk is novel doesn't mean that it's worse than a risk that you've been living with and knowing about all your life. You need to strip all that away. So key point, the presence of a nanorare mutation means that the patient and family will need to contend with many novel risks. To manage the risk-benefit decision-making thoughtfully, the patient and family must benchmark the novel risks to which they are being exposed to risks with which they are familiar and recognize that a novel risk may be scarier than a risk with which they are used to being exposed. But they need to think logically about the nature of the risk, the probability of the risk, and the potential consequences. And in that case, if they can do that, they have a context to think about the risk in a much more sensible way that can help inform uh, their risk-benefit decisions. There's another term that I want you to know. It's called compression Compression is a term that's used to describe the fact that often human beings exaggerate the risk of more novel or sensational risk. Uh, a good example of, of that is the risk of intruder causing harm in a household. You know, of course, that happens, but when it does, it's almost always sensationalized. And as a result, the response to such things is greatly, greatly exaggerated relative to the extremely low probability of such an event. A nanorare mutation comes out of the blue. It's a shock. It's terrifying. Compression means that you likely will exaggerate the risks, and the nanorare mutations can range from in severity, from immediately fatal to serious but treatable to progressive and untreatable. Once again, this is all about managing emotions and directing your emotions to effective action. Risks can occur as a result of things we do, acts committed, or as a result of actions not taken, omission. I mean, it's obvious. If you don't wear your seatbelt, that's a risk that you're accepting because of an, an act of omission. You didn't lock your seatbelt in. And if you fly through the window of your car in your car accident, that's the consequence of an act of omission. But uh, human beings tend to exaggerate the risks encountered by 
acts of commission, that is something they do more than acts of omission, something they don't do. And, and yet the failure to act often has a greater level of risk than taking action. Reducing this general concept to the nanorare patient immediately leads to the to treat or not to treat decision. This can be truly terrifying judgment that you have to make. And sadly, no one but the patient and parent can ultimately make that decision. Can't be made by a physician, can't be made by anyone other than the patient and the family affected. And if you choose not to be treated, you are making a bet that not acting is a better risk-benefit decision than trying to find a therapeutic approach. A key point, risk can be encountered because of actions taken or the failure to act. In the case of progressive diseases, the failure to attempt to treat a patient is associated with significant risk, always. If we know a disease is progressing and we choose not to treat it, if there were potentially effective treatment available, we are accepting risk that comes from the fact that we're not addressing a progressive disease. No matter what is happening in the world that we can see, at the molecular level, a nanorare mutation is always present. It's producing consequences that may add up to something that we can measure in a whole human being, but those consequences are negative. The most fundamental risk-benefit calculation must compare the risks and benefits of treatment to the risks associated with no treatment. And to make a decision to seek no treatment is a critical decision and can lead, particularly if you have a progressive disease, to real detrimental harm. Another interesting feature of our emotions about risk is how perceptions of risk vary depending on timing. The temporal relationship of a risk to an action is really a critical determinant of how we react to risk. We react to the obvious. And so we react to immediate risk far more vigorously than risks that may manifest themselves in the future. Compare the reaction to someone who suggests we join him to climbing El Capitan versus someone who offers us a cigarette. If you've never climbed a rock, the idea of climbing El Capitan is immediately terrifying. And certainly if I said I want to climb El Capitan, Roseanne would lock me in chains and probably advisedly so. Uh, yet we know that if we smoke, two-thirds of us will die of a smoking disease. So the probability of harm from smoking is probably much higher than harm from falling off El Capitan if you're doing it with a professional and doing it properly. The probability of dying is just the end of all the harm that smoking does to us, and yet we continue to do it. Drives me nuts, as you might tell. And we also know something else, and that is if we climb out Capitan and we mess up and we fall 500 feet, we die. But we know also if we smoke, we'll have more colds, we'll have more flus, we'll have smoker's cough, we'll have other kinds of diseases, and generally the end of life that we will experience will be terrible. It's important to understand that just because a risk is something that might happen in the future doesn't make it less concerning and less deserving of action than a risk that's more acute. So key point, don't be fooled by the clock. Do not be fooled by the clock.
yeah, of course, acute risk risks. <laughs> but if a chronic risk has a vastly higher probability of happening and the outcomes are vastly worse, just simple logic says we should pay more attention to it. Another interesting topic is the role of official opinions or official positions. And if you wonder how official positions affect our perceptions or responses to risk, once again, consider the response to infectious disease risk throughout modern history versus how we reacted to COVID. Despite the toll of winter pulmonary infections, for many, many decades, actually centuries, we went to work, we went to school, we wore no masks, we never quarantined the healthy. Now, there's a radical difference. And to a very large extent, that came from the official positions adopted by various officials for very good and very thoughtful reasons. The point is not that the response to COVID was good or bad, but rather the response to COVID was very different from what we've done in the past with infectious disease. What about averages? How do you think about applying averages to you if you have a problem or your child? So we can say that if a person is exposed to a particular infectious disease, let's say flu, 50% will come down with the flu and 10% of those may require hospitalization. That's good information to know. But knowing it, Understanding those averages and so on tells us nothing about the risk to an individual, a specific individual. We don't know if that person is in the 50% that get infected or the 50% who, who, for reasons we don't understand, don't. We have no idea of how that person will react to that flu. Will it be severe? Will it require hospitalization? Will they even notice that they have it? Averages are great. They provide us a probabilistic assessment of what might happen. And so the same applies to ASOs, that even if an ASO to a particular mutation has caused benefit in all three patients treated, that's 100%. That does not guarantee that the next patient will benefit. We wish it could. We wish we could say, since three out of three have done so well, the fourth is going to be great. We can't. We can say that given the response to the ASO in the first three patients, we're particularly optimistic that the next patient may benefit. And similarly, knowing that two-thirds of smokers will die due to a smoking-related disease doesn't help us at all predict which of people who we know who smoke will die of a smoking-related disease. Simply cannot use averages to predict individual responses. So the key point Averages of rates of benefit or side effects of a medicine provide valuable information that may encourage or discourage the treatment of a specific patient. But the average response does not provide a guarantee that the next patient treated will respond like the average. Once again, back to probabilities. Let's talk about anchoring and as a means of thinking and communicating about risk. It is uh, important to place any novel risk in the context of better understood risk. And this is called anchoring. And that is we use a known risk to help us proportionalize our response to a novel risk. However, when we contextualize a novel risk by comparing it to a better known risk, there are effective ways to communicate and many that are ineffective and many others that truly mislead. Now, I'll go back to the clinical trial and a couple of other things that we talked about earlier. To begin with, let's say I like milk duds. 
And I do. I really love them. <laughs> Roseanne reminds me daily that they're bad for me. Uh, but fortunately, I'm pretty good at ignoring, ignoring advice I don't want. So I eat my milk duds. And on the milk dud box, in big red letters, it says 30% less fat. And in fine print, it says, then the leading chocolate candy brand. Now, obviously, the company is that's making milk duds is doing everything possible it can do to communicate accurately about risk. Of course, that was sarcastic. And of course, I'm making it as a joke. The labeling of the milk dud box is a perfect example of misleading communication about risk that goes on all the time, sometimes innocently and sometimes entirely knowingly. And it demonstrates several ways to communicate or miscommunicate about risk. Suppose I were to tell you the results of the 10 milligram dose with that new antihypertensive drug that we talked about showed that patients were three times more likely to experience nausea than the five milligram dose. Well, that's accurate. That's true. But it communicates about risk very poorly. If I said the 10 milligram dose resulted in a net decrease of 15 millimeters of mercury in blood pressure, and three of 50 people treated had one episode of mild nausea, while a five milligram dose reduced blood pressure by five millimeters of mercury, and only one patient experienced mild nausea, that too is accurate. But now it provides useful statement about risk benefit. You may think the example is obvious, but I guarantee you in TV ads for drugs and in, in so many other ways, every day risk benefit is communicated poorly. And often the communication is like my Dutch communication, deliberately misleading. Many times there are protagonists antagonists for drugs and each side takes deliberately biased positions. Don't fall for deliberate or accidental miscommunication about risk benefit. If you're sick or your loved one is sick, you must make decisions about care. And you cannot afford to make decisions about risk benefit with sloppy communication. The term to describe the process I just went through with our new antihypertensive and my milk duds is called anchoring. Again, anchoring. It's a key step in understanding risk and it's a key step in understanding communications about relative risk because it actually gives insights into the absolute frequency of risk. So yes, three times as many, but that was just three out of 50. What if it were three times as many, but in the five milligram dose, all 50 had nausea, or let's say 25 had nausea, and suddenly you have nausea happening more than once in every patient. That's a very different setting. So yes, 10 milligrams daily of our new antihypertensive, it caused nausea in three times as many patients. That's true. Three patients versus one, not 30 patients versus 10. And the five milligram dose produced that only in one. But what decision would you make uh, about whether to be treated with this drug? Should you take the five milligram or the 10 milligram dose? Well, that would depend on a whole bunch of things, right? If you were the patient and you had a blood pressure, say 200 over 120, you'd say, give me that 10 milligram. I want 15 millimeters of mercury drop. And I'm willing to be nauseated, well, you know, once in a treatment course. If you had a blood pressure that was just slightly elevated, 
you'd probably make a different decision. You say, well, why don't I try with the five milligram dose? Risk benefit decisions are complex and they require that we think clearly and unemotionally. To understand risk, key point, you must understand the absolute incidence of each risk and each benefit and compare relative risks of various events that might be encountered. You must demand that providers speak clearly and simply about risk versus opportunity for benefit. And what you do, the decisions you make, have to be made in the context of the medical needs that you have or your loved one has. Of all the conversations I've had with you in this series, I think understanding the basis of risk-benefit decision-making is likely the single most important skill that will help you through an anorare disease and help you feel comfortable with the decisions that we're here forced to make by having the bad luck of having an anorare mutation. As you gain experience, then you will pick up the single most important skill that you could possibly have, and that is how to make an informed, effective decision in a complex area of health and medicine and science. I hope that I've helped. <laughs> uh, you never know. And that if you have questions or confused by something I've, I've said in these two uh, conversations, that you post them or write me. I'll do my best to try to clarify things. I do think questions about all this and comments might help many others as well. Uh, let me hear from you and let me know if I've missed the mark or at least come close to hitting the mark here. Thank you. Hi, I'm Keir Deneen, a producer of the Patient Empowerment Program. We at Enlorum wish you a safe and happy holiday season, and we hope you're enjoying and learning from this podcast. I certainly learned a lot about the importance of risk-benefit decision-making in this episode from Dr. Stan Crook. The Patient Empowerment Program will be taking a short break, and we plan to return strong with more episodes in January 2024. Happy holidays, everyone. And Lorem is a nonprofit committed to discovering and providing personalized experimental treatments for free for life to patients with genetic diseases that affect 1 to 30 patients worldwide, referred to by Enlorem as NanoRare. Many of these patients progress and die without ever achieving a diagnosis. This is where Enlorem comes in. They do the impossible by providing hope and for those that they can help free lifetime treatment. For more information about Enlorem or today's episode, visit enlorem.org. Any questions can be sent into podcast at enlorem.org. Search Enlorem on Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, LinkedIn, and Facebook to connect with us. Please rate and review the podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen. This truly helps us climb the charts and allows others to find the show. This podcast is hosted by Dr. Stan Crook. Our videographer is John Magnuson of Mighty One Productions. Our producers are John Magnuson and Kira Deneen of DNA Today. Thank you for listening. <laughs>